You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Good morning and welcome to this week's edition of The Beltway Briefing. I'm Mark Alderman. I'm here this morning with my friends and colleagues, Towner French, Patrick Martin, and Tristan Bro. Our fearless moderator, Howard Schweitzer, is home celebrating a happy occasion with his family. So first and foremost, congratulations to the Schweitzer clan, three generations of which are, are gathered out in Bethesda. And our colleague, uh, Caitlin Martin, is proving one more time that she's much smarter than the three of us. Caitlin is on a plane to sunny South Florida. She uh, is always finding a sunny place to do business, and the three of us are up here in in the Northeast. But we are not guys without our our resources. We have uh, here this morning among the three of you Decades of experience on Capitol Hill, Towner and and Tristan on the House side, Patrick on the Senate side. I am bringing uh, questions, not experience, to to this discussion. But I thought we would talk a little bit this morning about Congress, because we, we talk a lot on this show about dysfunction and discord and division, all of that is is all too real, but it's not all that is going on in Washington. In recent weeks, we've seen something uh, we see too little of. We've seen actual legislating, actual governing. And who better to uh, orient us to all of that than Professor French? So, Towner, what, what's happening up on, on the hill where you spent so many thanks, years? Has, and thanks for being our leader this morning. Pieces, uh, a, a light piece, a, a, an easy piece uh, has broken out, but there have been uh, a number of issues, including over the last two weeks that uh, cats and dogs have been able to agree upon, uh, that Republicans and Democrats have, have decided to uh, uh, think were good things that they'd negotiate. So we... Um, uh, you know, we got a postal reform bill through the House with 300 plus votes, uh, a, a uh, bill on uh, forced arbitration. You're getting into the real sexy stuff early here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's, well, this, this, you know, this is going to be a little bit like a high school civics class this morning. It, remember that slide deck of how a bill becomes law. We're, we're going to do some wonky stuff here in Howard's absence. It's it's okay. It's okay for Congress to actually do what they do and not be sound bites for, for Fox and MSNBC. You mean um, their job, Tom? What's that? <laughs> you mean do their job? Do their job, heaven forbid. Well, so the funny thing about this is through all of this chaos, Congress still actually does their job. It's just nobody ever talks about it. And that's probably actually a good thing because the top five things get torn apart in cable news and people lose their minds on social media 
But everything else now can just sort of slide under the radar. It used to be that people cared about all the things, but they don't. We're putting it on the radar screen this morning. We're going to expose Congress as actually performing and functioning here. Heaven forbid. I mean, they're ending forced arbitration for sexual harassment claims. That's a a big deal. deal. Huge deal. Big deal. Yeah. They're Long and that got here. 350 votes, Republicans and Democrats in the House of Representatives. They reached a, a bipartisan deal on on raising budget caps so they can move forward with an appropriations measure to fund fiscal year 22, which by the way is five months over at this point. They've <laughs> they've gone five months into the fiscal year before they're actually going to set the spending for the fiscal year. And then you know, in a little bit of a partisan manner, the House moved a America Competes uh, bill, but it will go to a bipartisan process uh, with the House and Senate, Republicans and Democrats coming together uh, and having a negotiation over that. So we've had we've had some major uh, maybe maybe in previous Congresses. Uh, before 2000, they wouldn't be considered major bipartisan achievements, uh, but they they are in, in this current day and time. And even with 49 Democratic senators, where you're one short of the 50 that we've been hanging on with the longest 50-50 Senate uh, in history, you saw uh, Leader Schumer file cloture on Caliph's nomination for FDA commissioner. So there are some some areas where they're realizing they they that's going to be close, but they have some Republican support to move some things forward uh, in the interim while the senator from New Mexico is recovering. And our listeners may know, Patrick, but in keeping with our civics lesson theme, we'll we'll remind them that without Republican support, Mm -hmm. 49 Democratic votes do not get a measure to the floor. Yeah, 50 is not a majority, really, and 49 definitely not a majority. So they're they're, uh, limited in what they can do on their own. In fact, they they can't do anything on their own. They need Republican. Yeah, and maybe we should... How how did how does this happen? You you've spent years watching the sausage be made up there. Who who says what to whom to get Congress to actually, uh, as you said a moment ago, do its job? You know, it's interesting. Um, you get to a point in the midterms and realize that an election is coming, uh, and you have both sides of the aisle that gets concerned. And you have committee chairs and ranking members who will go to each other and like, hey, we have to deliver for our district. Um, you got to have talking points and I got to have talking points. Um, we got to do something um, to, 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 um, to, to stop this gridlock. And they sit down. They do their job. And so the beginning of Congress is always the most controversial, especially after a presidential election. Um, you find them that they want to go to retreat their corners. You know, the, the folks that lost get hurt. The folks that win get them emboldened to do something. And then they finally realize that they have to do something together to achieve this. We've met that mark. You know, deadlines for filing for re-election have come. Um, first reports of, of financials have, are getting ready to drop. All these different dynamics are happening. And so members are like, we need talking points and we have to deliver something and not just what on the Republican side or the Democratic side, but more so the bipartisanship of we got Republic, I got Republican colleagues to support me on this bill and Republicans who are in swing districts, I got Democrats to help me um, pass legislation. So that's that's the point we are right now. So we're we're in that zone now for a little while, right? It isn't going to last uh, all that long, 
but we have maybe a couple of months to actually get some things done in Congress. And and we all know, uh, Towner, uh, you and Tristan and, and Patrick better than I, that the uh, most important word in government is staff. And it's your friends who are getting this done. What what are your friends talking about when you talk to your friends on the hill? What what's what's no. on their minds? What's on their agenda? We sit out here, and uh, I'm not going to mention the name that we spend all our time talking about. My goal is to get through this podcast without mentioning a certain former president. But that's not what they're talking about all day long, right? No, no. They're they're talking about what is in the art of the possible. Republicans and Democrats are doing that. And they're talking about what can be packaged together. Mm. Um, so there's a, you know, there's active negotiations right now uh, over a health package uh, on Capitol Hill that would be bipartisan. Uh, there's active negotiations right now in the financial services space about uh, uh, bills to, to help uh, job creators in the United States. So entrepreneurs. And so there's they're getting together. They're, they're, they have the ideas now. There's been, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast, where uh, over 6,700 bills have been introduced in the House. The ideas are now on the table and they've been started to be vetted. And so now we're seeing Republicans and Democrats, committee staff on both sides of the aisle start to, to cobble together. These things can move together in a bipartisan manner. This idea from a Republican member and this idea from a Democratic member complement each other and we could all agree to those things. So that that's what's happening right now. I will note, though, we are uh, February 14th is when the first ballot will be cast in the 2022 election. Uh, early voting in Texas primary starts on February 14th. So Valentine's um, Day of all Valentine, time. Valentine, yeah. Here yeah. we go. Happy uh, Valentine's Day. And yeah. uh, so, the, wow, the election begins Monday. And as mm-hmm. the election evolves, legislation slows, right? The, yeah. At some point... Patrick, the primary, the election line and the legislating line flip. I think that's true. I think we all know that, you know, as the election gets closer, members are going to slow down. They're going to focus more on their races. There's not going to be a real interest in kind of some of the bipartisan cooperation we're seeing on these on these agenda items that, that Towner walks through. How people are feeling, too. I mean, I would point out you know, these are like hard jobs. They don't pay particularly well. The hours are really long. And, you know, they've also, our friends have had to do these jobs in less than ideal circumstances. Their place of work got attacked. They've had to work from home. So much of something I've explained to people and might find interesting on this podcast, you know, so much of what makes those jobs fun are walking the halls, are being there, are seeing your friends and the members and feeling like you're witnessing a part of history and that you get to be a part of it. And doing that from home, it really loses kind of the magic of what makes that job fun. It's like, we're going to watch the Super Bowl this weekend. Can you imagine athletes being forced to try and play a game over Zoom? It's impossible, right? You have to be in the game. You have to play the sport. And and it's really hard to do that remotely. So that there's been certainly that part of it that I think has been challenging, uh, you know, for all of our friends who work on the Hill. Well, we are going to make our Super Bowl predictions at the end of the podcast and start start preparing those. But uh, the Super Bowl analogy is is a good one because politics is, of course, a contact sport. 
But but that is part of what the staffers love about their job. It, it isn't the dysfunctional contact. It, it is the hard-nosed negotiating contact and, and getting something done. And we have a couple of events coming up on the Hill, guys, that that could keep this actual governing going or could throw sand in those gears. We have uh, the State of the Union, I guess, is the next big event coming up March 1, I think. Yep. What You guys have been there for that. What's, what's the State of the Union like from the audience side? Yeah, it's, I mean, definitely one of the kind of big moments every year that brings, obviously, the entire capital together. You have the the pomp and circumstance part that everyone uh, I think enjoys, whether you're in the Capitol or you're watching on television, it's, it's, I think important for a lot. There's cynics who say, you know, to fulfill the constitutional obligation of the state of the union, you could just send a piece of paper. And I think actually presidents. Did that up until, yeah. I, I, I think that's a very cynical view. I think it's important for Americans to see their government all together. I think it it's helpful to remind people that, you know, these people work together and they don't just sit in the Fox News or CNN studio all day, that they sit amongst each other. And I think it's important to hear uh, the president's, uh, you know, vision for the next year um, and how he plans to work with Congress. I do think it's going to be interesting just on a substantive matter, how the White House is going to handle this speech. You obviously have some huge foreign policy concerns that I'm, I'm sure he'll address with the situation in Ukraine. On the domestic front, you have an economy uh, that continues to each quarter show we're growing, we're adding jobs at a historic clip. Americans are saving money. Any American who wants a job can get one right now. And you have states that are removing mask mandates, Omicron subsiding. And if you had told me those were going to be the circumstances for the president's State of the Union and entering the spring and summer, I would have thought home run, two thumbs up. But everything is about inflation right now. If Americans have to pay a great deal more for any type of consumer good you can think of, all the other stuff I just said isn't going to matter. And so that's that is what I think he's going to have to address uh, in his speech. And I think that's that's going to be the big issue as, as far as I can see over the next several months. We have to also understand um, that this is this is the president, as Patrick said, this is the president's moment. Um, and. I would note that we should pay attention to how many times both sides of the aisle claps. Um, you know, if there's ever been a president who can probably, you know, speak uh, to the other side of the aisle and articulate the argument of the other side of the aisle, it's Joe Biden. Not that he's been doing it very well in this in this uh, in this administration, but he knows it and he and he can do it. And so, the question I have is just, will he do it? And will he be successful in the talking points? And how many times can he get bipartisan claps? And it may be something small, but it's actually something big uh, in Congress right now. How many times you can get both sides of the aisle to agree on something that you say in your speech? And that's what I'm going to be looking for. Well, and we can count on uh, somebody, Steve Kornacki or someone will be counting with you. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get a breakdown of the numbers, I'm sure, in, in real time. But the other big event or one other big event that is coming, uh, not as soon as the State of the Union, but depending on Senator Lujan's recovery, which we all, of course, uh, wish will happen uh, speedily, 
the Supreme Court nomination on on your side of the hill, Patrick, on one side of the hill, is going to be a, a big event and and maybe an occasion for more bipartisanship. I I think we all know there will not be a unanimous approval of the president's nominee. But there's there's some hope that there are some Republican votes here and and that we can once again demonstrate actual governing instead of dysfunction and division. Yeah, I think he's looking for a pick that is going to, I mean, first and foremost, be someone that, you know, a qualified member of the Supreme Court who will make Americans proud as a as a jurist on the highest court in the land. I also think there's going to be something for everyone in the pick. A lot of people are going to be happy for a variety of reasons. And, you know, part of what I think you see, and Tanner, you can speak to this from the Republican perspective, but like Republicans aren't dumb here either, right? This is this is a 6-3 conservative court. This is replacing one of the three liberal justices with a, you know, uh, mainstream Democratic appointed justice. I do not think President Biden is going to nominate someone, you know, way, way, way out there on the left. And so if you're the Republicans, you got to ask yourself, they've got a majority when the senator from New Mexico returns. They've got 50 seats, so they could do it by themselves. Why would we make this into a, assuming there is no major qualification issue, major, uh, you know, kind of background issue or something that would come up, to me, it's just the juice isn't worth the squeeze on it being a fight for the party. And and so I think that's why, and pair that with the fact that it will be a historic and historic nomination. Uh, I just don't think there is any reason for the Republicans to go scorched earth on this. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I, I, the way I've been thinking about it is, you know, well, I wish he'd just nominate Childs and be done with it because he knows he has you know, eight to 12 Republican votes probably for Childs right out of the gate before the hearings start and just move on. Republicans would like him to move on, which is, and they wouldn't mind him nominating Childs and just being done with this. And let's move into the the talk of, you know, approval numbers and things like that and, and inflation again, uh, so they can get back on, on better political footing, which the more I think about it, and I was thinking about this last night, why would he nominate Childs if you want to rile up the base? If you, if, you know, if votes are going to be cast on February 14th. And you're already seeing progressive groups uh, start to unite against her because this will make all of us chuckle. She had the gall to work at a corporate law firm. Uh, so, I mean, I just, I don't, I, I can't believe that. Disqualification. Uh, you said I, I can't be nominated for the Supreme Court, Patrick? No. Yeah. No. We, and I went to public school. Uh, so, you know, yeah. keep, can't do that either. Yeah, if he's no, going to do is, it, he should do it soon. Just, a, just get it done. There's a perversity yeah. to it because uh, on paper, of all the positions in government that uh, are constitutionally and theoretically above the fray or beyond politics, it, it is the, the nomination of a Supreme Court justice. And it, in fact, we all know, is the most intensely political decision that uh, a president makes. So it, it, it will be interesting. It will be interesting to see the twists and turns on this. But Patrick, Patrick's point, to, to Patrick's point, though, um, you know, with progressives, they have the same argument, well, the same case as it relates to Republicans. You know, if he does nominate Childs, you know, is this really worth the fight of saying she's not the person when she's a black woman, which is what they've been fighting for, you know, at, at, 
in the beginning. And so at the end of the day, progressives are going to support whoever, you know, that black woman is. And so, yeah, yeah they have, again, it's, it's not worth scorched earth on the progressive side because they wanted this for so long. So yeah. it's, I mean, the Biden has an ability to, you know, kind of negotiate here. Like I'm doing what, you, what I said I was going to do. Totally agree. Yeah. They, that's why they're trying to rally now to try and influence the White House in whatever way they can, because they want obviously the most progressive African-American woman they can get. And so they're right. trying to, but at the end of the day, you're right. There's no way, you know, the progressive movement is going, I mean, separate from some major revelation coming out. Uh, that's just, that's just not going to happen. I would also know to be interesting, just a kind of an insider thing. We have a new uh, Senate Judiciary Committee chairman. This will be his first time uh, overseeing what is kind of like the, not to make another Super Bowl reference, but like the Super Bowl of Senate yeah. committee hearings, uh, my home state Senator, Senator Durbin, um, and, you know, Senator Durbin, so just some of us, Patrick, are old enough to remember when the incumbent president chaired right. the committee at a right. Supreme Ex- Court hearing. Exactly. It's important. You've kind of it took the tone. 20 years to get over that uh, hearing. Yeah. You set the tone also for how everything goes, um, <laughs> you know, and that it's it's a really important job for a really high profile moment. And I actually think, you know, Senator Durbin's the whip. Um, I don't know on a day-to-day basis, how much whipping he's really doing, you know, some of this stuff, it's, it's kind of, he's number two, I think as an honorary thing to some degree, he is probably the most talented lawyer on our side of the aisle. You hear other senators say that all the time. He is by far our best debater on the floor. He is, I mean, he is just an unbelievable uh, speaker. He's a trial lawyer. He, he just, the way he extemporaneously speaks and moves his hands and He's very gifted. And so I think that that will come across in the hearing, although it's it's not going to be in a uh, taking on the other side way since this is a. Well, uh, right. You know, we, we're going to have on our side of the aisle, we're going to have uh, some trouble if the chairman of the Judiciary Committee is cross-examined. Yeah, the exactly. exactly. That, that, that will not be a good visual for, right. <laughs> for the party. And, and it is fascinating the, again, the politics of a Supreme Court uh, nomination. Biden did something uh, politically smart, but also uh, uh, a little bit controversial in committing to naming an African-American woman to the court in the campaign and then reiterating it. It comes at a time when the Supreme Court is taking up affirmative action which is sort of a perverse uh, context for all of this. But as as Tristan was saying a minute ago with progressives, Towner was saying with Republicans, the president uh, at at least knows that barring, as you said, Patrick, some aberration, some disclosure revelation that, that would be surprising given the vetting that goes on here, it it's just not easy to be against an historic pick like uh, the president is about to make. So I'm I'm looking forward to a, a bit of bipartisanship there. I do, I'm not going to take us down this rabbit hole, Towner, but I do think there's at least one member of your party, not currently in office, who is unlikely to endorse this pick. But, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, look, the, the Supreme Court is the Just apple don't say in the garden his name. of people. I, We've ruined I, it. 
We're not saying his name, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we've we've ruined the Supreme Court over 230 years. It's no longer this, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, nonpartisan thing that uh, it was. It was ultimately. Uh, decided it would be by the founders, and and it is a political entity now. And so there are going to be politics that enter this equation. I think you know again, if it's Childs, I think you're going to see uh, a decent number of Republicans actually support because most senators want to support a Supreme Court justice. At the end of the day, they actually do, um, despite what they say to Judicial Watch or some you know group out there that's conservative or liberal on on the Supreme Court. They really do want to question uh, a Supreme Court justice nominee and they want to get those answers back and they want to make an informed decision and they want to get to yes. Um, It used to happen all the time. And when I say used to, I mean, you know, as of 20 to 30 years ago, uh, we saw, you know, overwhelmingly lopsided votes in favor of Supreme Court justices with the exception of, of Bork. Justice Breyer, who, you know, I mean, as a perfect example, I will say one one thing you you know with who will not support it, and, and this is both both parties, by the way. Um, anyone who is interested in running for president will not vote to confirm this nominee, no matter who they are. And I can guarantee you that. Uh, and that happens. That is that's come out of the last. Uh, you know, to, to Tanner's point, we used to have kind of overwhelming confirmations. I, I guess starting with. Uh, Roberts and Alito, and then kind of moving on from there. It, it, if you're thinking about running for president, you're not gonna you're not gonna vote for him. You just you just can't. Well, she's gonna have to get confirmed without Ted Cruz's vote. Then exactly <laughs> ninety nine to one, Senator Cruz in in the distinct minority. President Obama, Mark, who who we both love and admire, he wanted uh, you know to vote uh, for. Chief Justice Roberts, he, he genuinely thought he was a qualified pick. And uh, your friend Pete Rouse and others said you, ca- you cannot do it if you want to run for president. And a, a lot of other senators that came to that same. Conclusion. So it's it's unfortunate that that's the reality, but it'll be interesting to watch on the Republican side. If there's anyone that we don't know by now has national ambitions, we can we can track this vote and find out. Yeah, good point. Uh, and I'm just going to the town or drop a footnote to something you said uh, yeah. Uh, I think the founders intended the court to be above politics, but if you could ask Thomas Jefferson what he thought of John Marshall's tenure as Chief Justice, I, I think you'd find out that the founders' dreams were frustrated right out of the gate. Immediately. <laughs> yeah, it, took, it took no time. Well, let's spend the few minutes we have remaining on something Towner mentioned uh, earlier because it's something that all four of us on this podcast are deeply involved in. The House uh, passed a an American competition bill uh, this week. Uh, party line vote, one Democrat didn't and one Republican did. Party line vote. There is an American competition bill already passed in the Senate with more bipartisan support. Um, Maybe ten Republicans, uh, some some number like that, and and now what happens? Let's go back to our slideshow from high school: how a bill becomes law. What what happens now, Towner? Yeah, I mean, this is this is old school, I guess we'd call it now. But you know, pre two thousand and five, it happened all the time. Uh, the Senate 
amends the House package with their own original package that they passed and requests a conference with the House. The House agrees to that conference, and then both chambers on both sides of the aisle name conferees. So members of the Senate, members of the House are named to be the negotiators uh, of coming up with a combined package. And each provision that's in the House and the Senate bill uh, will be under consideration, uh, and they will cobble together a final, what they call conference report, uh, that would then be voted on uh, subsequently in both houses and sent to the president. So we are about to engage in a larger negotiation on some major bills for the last 15 or 20 years. What ends up happening is that leadership and maybe a couple committee chairs you know, get in a room together for a couple minutes and and figure out what the heck's going to happen with the with the president and and, and his team. But you know, this is going to be more of an organic process uh, that we we have grown unaccustomed uh, to seeing in Congress recently. And, and a bipartisan, by definition, of course, a bipartisan process on something on which there is great bipartisan support, at least thematically, that uh, America needs to compete in the world, specifically with China, which brings us, Patrick, to the most important provision in the House version of the American Competition Bill. Tell us what the most important provision is, and then Tristan can tell us what's going to happen to it. The safe banking bill, uh, which has been a crusade for everyone on this call and the entire cannabis industry, our good friend, uh, Congressman Ed Perlmutter, through his position as a member in good standing, as Towner would say, of the House Rules Committee, uh, had the Safe Banking Act uh, amended or added. Uh, what is it, Towner? What's the term? Uh, made in Made in order. Made in order by the made Rules Committee. Made in order. That's that's a House term. Yeah, made in order, uh, and so ultimately passed on the House version of the Safe Banking Act. I think this is the sixth or seventh time that the Safe Banking Act has passed the House. And since it's Super Bowl weekend, one more football note. Mark's heard me say this, but <laughs> I call Safe Banking Act the, the Buffalo Bills. They just keep winning the AFC championship in the late 80s and early 90s, and then uh, they don't win the Super Bowl. So we are very hopeful uh, that it will get consideration in this conference committee. It's it's gotten close a couple of times. and uh, But you have Senate opposition, both from Leader Schumer uh, and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, but you have uh, bipartisan support in the House. You have nine Republican co-sponsors in the Senate, uh, and so we'll just have to see how it how it plays out. But it's an interesting dynamic to to be sure. And Tristan, you've you've been there. You've uh, been in the room for for conferences back in the old world uh, that Towner was talking about. Not not to date you. You're of course a young and immortal man. But but how how does that happen? What does that look like uh, in in real time uh, uh, when a provision like safe banking uh, is in one bill but not the other and and has a spotlight on it since it it as Patrick was saying has been sent over from the House a uh, number of times and never never made it through the Senate. The objective here is to get something that will pass. Um, The objective is to figure out what we agree on, um, what's going to cause little controversy in getting votes, um, what can we achieve together 
um, at the end of the day. And, you know, we, we've been here before in this conference um, scenario with, with safe banking. Um, you know, we, we get all the way up to the line. And then, of course, you know, there, there's a phone call made. There's an issue with it. And it gets too it gets too complicated. All of a sudden, you know what? Let's just remove everything complicated from this. And it's not just safe banking. It's a couple of other things that could be complicated. Uh, but that gets removed so they can pass something. But I hope, I hope in the spirit of the Super Bowl weekend um, and making bets um, of everything, I hope that we get to a point where, you know, going back to my my first statement at the beginning of the podcast, we have to have talking points and we have to have something to put on the campaign trail. And a lot of Democratic members and some Republicans in the House have like put this as their their issue. Um, and if we don't get anything out of this going into November, then it's going to be a problem for a large population of voters who have been trying to push this issue. A lot of our clients who have been pushing this issue. And so they have to achieve something. Even if we don't get you know, the the criminal justice part of it, like we have to get something. And safe banking has always been that, um, even though it's been that third rail, it's always been that easy thing to push through. Um, you know, we, we don't want to have this, you know, fall because we can't get all the things that we want. And so I hope that this is that moment and, you know, we have to compete. Um, and what, be- what better way to compete than have folks <laughs> who are, uh, you know, selling cannabis <laughs> be able to do it. Well, agreed. Agreed. The one it doesn't get any to... better than that on this podcast. So we're going to pivot from that to our Super Bowl predictions. Thank, thank you, Tristan, for <laughs> for bringing it home. So uh, the tradition has been to make uh, our predictions this football playoff season. Then Howard arbitrarily changes the counting rules and excludes my picks for some reason. But he's not here to do that, and there's only one pick this time around. Towner, who who wins the Super Bowl? I'm going with Joe Burr. I think I think I think Cincinnati's going to take it. To be honest with you, he's man. They've been playing lights out, and they got a lot of weapons. I know I know the Rams do too, but uh, but I, I got Cincinnati. Well, Rams are favored two to one. I know. But- I know, but I'm going with you. I'm I'm going with Cincinnati. Whether it's the better football bet or not, it's the better story. So I'm I'm going with Cincinnati since we're storytellers in this group, Patrick. Well, for storytellers, I got a good story for you, which is that <laughs> Matt Stafford is just an awesome guy. I'm a big big fan. My in-laws all live in Detroit. They are all. It says something when a city is really united behind someone who never was able to deliver the Super Bowl for them, but they want to see him succeed because of how much he gave to that, that Lions team. So I'm, I'm rooting for Matt Stafford. Great guy, married father of four and the, and the Rams. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know I was going to get on your wife's bad side by picking. Oh, it's, you already are. <laughs> no, I was unaware of that. <laughs> Contact sport, Towner. Contact sport. Tristan. Of course, I couldn't make this a, uh, in the spirit of the Supreme Court, a unanimous uh, <laughs> decision here. Um, I'm going with the Rams. Um, I, I think I think Odell Beckham is hungry. Uh, he has been hungry ever since he was with the you Giants. Love Odell Beckham. Um, he wants MVP status. You know, I um I I have always felt like, unfortunately, the Bengals have been cursed for Super Bowls. They have yet to achieve one. Um, even though they're probably the only team who had stayed in the same city 
um, for the entire time that they've been in existence. So I think that, um, again, I, I just think that as it relates to being hungry, both teams want it, both teams deserve it. Um, but I'm going with 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 a home field advantage here. There we go. Two and Mark did up Tampa Bay last year too. Mark, I'm hesitant to do this because of my feelings toward the University of Michigan, but I feel like with Howard's absence, we got to credit him. I had a phone conversation with him last night where I said, Purdue is the best basketball team in the big and by far they keep kicking Illinois, butt. I was sure they were going to destroy his Wolverines last night and Michigan won by 24 points at home. They just dominated them. Proving Uh, once again, Towner and Tristan, there's nothing better than big 10 basketball. And on any given night, driving through the ice and snow, any given nationally ranked team can end up losing by 20. That's true. It's the best. I'll, I'll introduce you to the ACC at some point, Mark. It's I'm it's going to be a revelation. Thanks, thanks to your recommendation, I'm watching the <laughs> tournament uh, show. It's a, but let thanks, guys, for a great conversation. I, I'm going to end. I have to say though, Mark, before we before we end, that even though we are all four of us are excited about the Super Bowl, we're all married, so we have to prepare for Valentine's Day the very next day. So That's just right. Good. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> Yeah, appreciate the reminder. I can use it. And two two closing notes. Thanks to all for a great show. Congratulations to Sophie Schweitzer once again. And to our, our friends and colleagues, Brian Flaherty and Tom Gallagher, we apologize for not mentioning a certain name. We know you love it when all we do is talk about him. But we made it uh, coast to coast without talking about the 45th president. And and on that note, before I slip, good to see everybody. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.